Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Ohad Leslau. He's a historian in the IDF History Department and probably one of the world's foremost historians on the 2002 Battle of Jenin. I'm really excited. I got to talk to him when I visited Israel. Now it seems like years ago, but not too long ago, and, and was able to get a presentation on this battle because I think this battle, the Battle of Jenin and the Battle of Nablus are kind of important to me and my research and studies about the things that were learned, the complexity of the operation. So I got to get a briefing while I was in Israel, a lot easier for my guest when he has a map and a few maps and a slideshow he can use. But I asked him to come on this show and give our listeners, you know, basically the story, like what happened in the Battle of Janine. Ohad, welcome to the show. Hi, John. So I know this will, will be a little bit difficult, but I still think it'll be a great conversation. So can you tell us a little bit about the context of the Battle of Janine or like what's happening in Israel at this time? Why was this operation conducted? You know, that broader context. Let's let's put a, a big story, a long story short. The Battle of Janine, the background is the second intifada. It broke in October 2000 when the initiative to achieve a final peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians failed in October 2000 and intifada, the second intifada broke. It started the beginning of the Second Intifada was many clashes between the IDF and the armed Palestinians, but very soon it became much more a deadly conflict with suicide bombers. Let's say that approximately 400 citizens and soldiers in Israel died from October 1000 until the end of March 2002 when the Battle of Jenin begins. So Israel is going to a big operation in the end of March. After during March, approximately 100 citizens and soldiers are getting killed, mainly of suicide bombers. The peak of, of these uh, terrorist attacks is in uh, Leila Seder. It's the Passover night in a hotel in Netanya. 30 citizens, mainly elderly people, are getting killed because of suicide bombers. And Israel decides that enough is enough. And she's going to a big operation in Judea and Samaria, not in the Gaza Strip, only in Judea and Samaria. The IDF is entering the big cities in Judea and Samaria for the first time in all the territory, not in one city or two cities, or one, only one refugee camp, in the entire Judea and Samaria. Just to understand, before that, the Oslo agreements in the 90s, you had Judea and Samaria into three areas, A, B, and C. C is under Israeli security control, A is under the Palestinian security control. And until February 2002, the IDF doesn't enter the cities and the refugee camps, the A areas in Judea and Samaria, and actually it's almost the first time that we enter these areas. So the Jenin battle is only part of big operation defensive shield that begins on March 28, 2002 in Ramallah. Then it goes to Karim and Kalkilia, later to Nablus, and in Jenin, the city Jenin, the refugee camp. This operation ends on April 2021. It's very hard to, to understand when it ends. It's, it's part of the question of when an operation against a terror organization is ending. You don't have a peace agreement and you don't have a flag over Iwo Jima. So deciding when the operation is ended, it's very hard. But it's something like 2021st of April. And the Battle of Jenin is the most bloodiest battle for the IDF and also for the Palestinians. So this is the very short background to this battle. 
But I would like to add some sentences about Janine refugee camp, the terrain, the land. The Janine refugee camp is the most dense uh, refugee camp in Judea and Samaria. It's about 0.16 square miles. That's it. That's the territory. Nothing. It's like a big football field. So when you say refugee camp, you know, initially in my mind, I think I thought about tents and some type of temporary housing. But you know, in the Judea and Samaria, in the Palestine areas, that's just a location where registered refugees live. But the actual camp, they're buildings, right? They're, they're hard structures. They are living there since 40, 1948, since the independence war, 1948 war, depends on how, which side gives the name. So the houses are, are built. It's not tents. It's houses. The buildings are from different uh, sort of, of building. You have buildings with two, three, four levels. You have buildings with thin walls or with thick walls. It's not something that you can say it's the entire refugee camp is the same. It's the difference in the Balata refugee camp, which is a refugee camp near Nablus. The buildings are the same. In Janine refugee camp, it's different. And, and also the roads are not uh, parallel. It's not New York, let's say that. You have different roads, very narrow. It's very hard to enter with a, a car to the refugee camp. So we, when you speak about tanks, they can't enter the refugee camp. And the roads are some dead end, some get to some point and then goes to another point. The area is, is a chaos, a chaos of buildings. Sure, what we call the unstructured urban area. And the density is very high. About 14,000 people live in this big football field. So it's like 14,000 people per square mile. Yeah, it, it's very hard to imagine how dense this refugee camp is. But just imagine 14,000 people in a, in a football field. That's the way to think about it. And there's no road that you can split the refugee camp. You have to enter the entire block. So this is the refugee camp. As I said, it's from 1948. Most of the armed people in the refugee camp are from the Palestinian Jihad the gap, today we say in Hebrew, and from the Hamas. And there are also few from the Fatah, which is a part of the Palestinian Authority, but most of them are the Palestinian Jihad and Hamas, which are very radical organizations. Now, the Jenin refugee camp is very near the center of Israel. It's less than an, an hour drive from Haifa, let's say an hour and a half from Tel Aviv, and two hours from Jerusalem. From the Jenin refugee camp, we had... I think like 10 suicide bombers that hit Israel. Another thing about the refugee camp, it's built on a hill. So most of the refugee camp is flat, but some of the, of the refugee camp is on a hill. And it's also very close to the Jenin city. So the terrorists can run away or back and go to the Jenin city. So I will talk about it, how we planned the operation, but we had to find a way that they won't go to the Janine city. How big is Janine city? And what's the proximity? Is it just one street over? What's the connection between the... Janine is a city. It's, it's a different story. The IPF went into the Janine city, but it's very hard to find the terrorists in the city than in the refugee camp. You don't want them to go to the city. You want to separate the two, and I will speak about it. So this is the refugee camp, very rough lines. Now, another fact that we must say about this battle is the IDF entered the refugee camp 
three weeks before the big battle. After a suicide bomber exploded in Jerusalem, the Golani Brigade entered the refugee camp. It didn't actually occupy it. It was more like a patrol during the night and during the day inside the refugee camp. The purpose of this operation was to show the terrorists that we are not afraid of entering the refugee camp. Again, it's the first time the IDF enters a refugee camp since the 90s. So we wanted to show the terrorists, and by the way, also to us, that we can enter a refugee camp without many casualties. And this operation had only one dead soldier during this operation. So we felt good about it. We have a self-confidence that we can fight in the refugee camps, but we forgot, or maybe we, we didn't pay attention, that also the enemy learned from this attack. Now we'll speak about it later, but it's not the first time they see the IDF under fire, and it's not the first time we enter the refugee camp. It's a fact that we must remember. So this is the background of battle, and I would like to move to March 28, when Israel decides to go to Operation Defensive Shield. We had plans for this operation. It wasn't a surprise. We knew that it will come. But we decided to send to the refugee camp, not regular uh, unit, but a reserve unit. Yeah. So for the Israeli military, you have active duty, regular army, and then you have a very large reserve force. Yeah. The main force is the reserve. The regular units, the regular uh, brigades, as I said before, were engaged in fighting in the cities in the refugee camps. The Golani Brigade, the paratroopers, the Nahal, they had the experience. The reserve units didn't have any experience fighting in the refugee camp. A reserve unit, it's actually soldiers that served most of them three years in the regular units. And then they serve, like you say, a month during a year in the reserve units, mainly two weeks training and two weeks in actual duty. So the experience they had was not, was not enough, let's say, to fight in the refugee camp. So the decision was to send reserve brigade to the refugee camp, reserve brigade to the city of Jenin, but we knew we, ha- we have a problem, that battalions are not experienced enough to fight in the refugee camp. So they decided to send two battalions from the brigade, and they added one battalion which was a regular unit, which fought in the refugee camp before. So it was a mix of units. The brigade was a reserve brigade. Two battalions were reserved, and one battalion was a regular battalion that already fought in the refugee camp. And that was a battalion from Golani Brigade? From the Golani Brigade, yes. Which had the experience, I may say, maybe had Not the good experience, because it felt that it was a very easy mission, because last time they entered, it wasn't very hard. This was the infantry brigade, so we had, let's say, a company of tanks between 8 to 10 tanks, not more, because, again, you can't enter the refugee camp with tanks. And, of course, D9s, engineering units with D9s. In the beginning, they had two or three D9s. D9 is the bulldozer, which I had the, the great pleasure to drive when I was last visiting. Basically an armorized, very big bulldozer. Yeah, it's sort of a monster. When you hear it, it's, it's sort of a monster. And that's it. You know, you had no artillery because it, civilians live in the refugee camp and we don't want civilians to get hurt. The Air Force is, you don't use jets 
only helicopters with uh, missiles on targets that you spot with the enemy. And again, no artillery because of the citizens that live in the refugee camp. So the idea was to take this brigade to occupy, take a control of the refugee camp. Oh, how what was the mission of the brigade? Was it to clear the camp of suicide bombers or... The target of the brigade was to clear the refugee camp from terrorist and terrorist infrastructure. The idea was to, to catch the, the terrorists and the suicide laboratories. That was the mission. The operational concept of the brigade was to first encircle the refugee camp, not to let them uh, run away to the city like they did when the Golani brigade entered the refugee camp. All the terrorists, after a few shots, went to the city. So the idea was to encircle the refugee camp, and they had the Israeli Navy SEALs. So Navy SEALs, but the, the Israeli Navy SEALs, a few teams with uh, snipers, they put them in the border between the city and the refugee camp in order to prevent the terrorists entering the city. Then one battalion mission was to encircle the refugee camp, and then two battalions, the regular and the reserved, to enter the refugee camps from the upper hill. Like I said, the refugee camps on a flat place. One regular battalion was to enter the refugee camp from the hill, from the high ground to the low ground. And then another battalion from the other opposite of the refugee camp. It's an attack from two different places. Got it. So one battalion is isolating the objective to make sure that nobody can go to the big city and then one battalion each entering from different sides. That was the initial plan, and to do it all night, when they are not able to see you. Because we understood, the experience was that the operation that we had before, that the problem is to enter the buildings. You have to run in, in the open area. We wanted to do it on the, during the night. And then when the light is up, you can see the IEDs and all, all the terrorists in the refugee camp, but we wanted to enter the camp during the night. Let's say a few sentences about the intelligence we had about the refugee camp, and I can say it in a few words. We had nothing. We knew there was about 100, 150 uh, militants in the refugee camps. We knew they had mainly M16 and Kalach. We knew they prepared IEDs, but we didn't know how much and where. So the intelligence was very general. What was the, uh, the civilian situation? Did you evacuate all the civilians beforehand? Now, they knew we were coming, but we didn't have enough intelligence what is the situation inside the, the refugee camp, if they are in citizens or not. It wasn't a fact that we tried to find out. During the battle, we understood that most of the civilians left the refugee camp before the battle started. But we didn't know exactly what's going on. We mainly didn't know what the militants are preparing. Now, they knew, again, the IDF tactics before. They had the experience, so they made a lot of IEDs, something like a thousand, more than a thousand IEDs in this very, very narrow and small place. They had also snipers waiting in the open area because they knew that this is a weak point of the forces. And they decided to fight and not to surrender, which is the main problem during the battle. They decided they're not going to surrender, they're going to fight until the last man. This is why this fight ended only when we occupied, actually, the entire refugee camp. Another thing that they knew, they learned about the tactics of, of breaking the wall and moving between walls. 
They knew about it and they understood that they need to put IEDs in the houses. So another thing, they learned very fast. In two or three weeks, they understood the tactics and prepared for us a booby traps and IEDs inside the houses. Because that tactic of moving through the walls, you know, a lot of people say came from the Ramallah, Nablus, this battle time frame. That's a thing that people don't remember. Also the Israeli commanders, because it was a very intense period. The IDF started these tactics three weeks before this operation in a refugee camp near Jenin in Balata. And we were proud of these tactics and we spoke about it. Look, we have a new tactics that surprised the enemy, but the enemy learned about it and understood and prepared surprises for us for this tactic. So it wasn't a surprise for them. So this is how the enemy planned its operation and how we planned the battle. But like always, you can plan a lot of plans, but then the reality faces you. The forces moved to the refugee camp. Two battalions moved on armored vehicles and one battalion moved on their foot. They walk. And it was the 2nd of April, 2002. And in Israel, in April, you have sun, it's, it's hot, and usually the ground is dry. Yeah, but in 2002, on 2nd of April, it was raining. And of course, the troops got stuck in the mud and also the vehicles, and they got to the suburbs of the refugee camp in first light. So the beginning of the battle was not as planned. The Navy SEALs that entered in the last hours, last dark hour, had to fight in order to enter the houses they wanted to enter. And the forces, the two battalions, had to move in the open area south of the refugee camp in light. During the day, it was 9 or 8 or 9 in the morning. And in the beginning of this fight, of course, one sniper of the militants got shot. A company commander was shot dead in a few minutes. The first minute of the battle in the battalion, stopped because the commander got killed. The regular battalion advanced. It successfully crossed the open field before the refugee camp. But then they understood that the enemy is, is acting differently from the last battle. The battalion commander told the brigade commander that it's a different battle. He felt the defense is harder. They're not going back. They understood our tactics, and it's going to be another battle. So he, he asked his brigade commander, the Golani brigade commander, to give him two companies that he didn't have because it's going to be a very hard battle. So after the few first hours of the battle, and speaking about the 3rd of April 2002, we had one a battalion encircling the refugee camp. One reserve battalion got stuck because one of the company commander was killed. And, and that's it. The, the battalion was in a shock. And the regular battalion is advancing, uh, let's say, four or 500 meters into the refugee camp. But it stopped because the other battalion is not moving. So it doesn't want to move because then the militants can cycle in. I know we talked about this during your brief, but I think there was some type of issue of where the brigade commander was during this. Actually, it's not the brigade commander. The brigade commander was a regular officer. He had a new commission two weeks before the operation. Nobody placed a new commander, so the deputy commander became the brigade commander. He was also from a reserved officer. And he placed the headquarters, the, the brigade headquarters, let's say 
two kilometers from the refugee camp and he decided not to join the forces because he, he was afraid of friendly fire because so many forces in such a small area, he was afraid of the friendly fire. So he decided to be in the headquarters where he can control all the forces. Also, I had to mention, you also had tanks. Each battalion had two or three tanks. So he wanted to control the battle from the headquarters. Not normal, right? From an Israeli, let's say, regular brigade commander to be that far back. No, that was the main criticism against him, but, uh, mainly from the regular battalion commander. He told you that you can't understand the battlefield if you don't enter it. But his main concern was the friendly fire, and then he decided to be far away from the battlefield. It was hard for him to understand what's going on. By the night of the 3rd of April, he understood that there's a problem because the units are not moving. Almost, again, 100 meters, 200 meters, that's it. So he understood that the other battalion, which was encircling the refugee camp, now can join the fighting because its job is ended. The, the terrorists are stuck in the refugee camp. So he changed their mission, and their mission became to enter the refugee camp. From the opposite side, the other battalions fought from the north northeast side of the refugee camp. The two battalions came from the south, from different angles from the south, and he wanted the third battalion to come from the north. But this battalion, you had to first take all the people from their positions, and then to do the planning, and then enter them to the refugee camp. It took a day, almost a day, to do these all procedures, which again, the operation is not moving. And when the operation is not moving, the upper uh, levels, chief of staffs, the main headquarters in Tel Aviv started to ask questions. What's going on? How long did they think that the operation would take? Between two to three days. But they didn't give an order to finish it in 72 hours. But they were sure it will end in two or three days. Like, let's say, in Turkarim and Kalkilia, it ended after six or seven hours. In Bethlehem, it ended after 12 hours. So they say it will take 24 to 48 hours. But then they understood it's not moving as they planned. So they decided to give the brigade another regular battalion, but not from Golani Brigade, from different brigade. So now we had in this battle, we had a reserve deputy brigade commander, which had two battalions from his brigade and two battalions from different brigades. Again, it took time to this battalion to enter the battle, I think 12 or 14 hours. And it, this battalion had the mission to enter the refugee camp from the west side. Where's this fourth battalion from? Is it from... It finished its mission in Ramallah. Ramallah was a piece of cake. And it was a regular battalion from the Nahal Brigade. Got it. So now when you put forces... Not all the force that you can in, in the beginning, but only after two days, the enemy has much more self-confidence. After a day of fighting, it saw that the IDF is not frightening like it was the, the last time. And we now reach for the 4th of April. Now we have four battalions fighting in the refugee camp, one entering from the north side, one from the south, and one from the west. And the Navy is in the east in order to prevent the militants to go in, into the city. But this is my interpretation of the situation. The militants were very self-confident. They killed, until now, I think four, between four or five soldiers. They saw that the IDF is not moving very fast. 
They saw that they can defend the refugee camp. And since then, the movement is very, very slow. Let's say between 20 to 30 meters, each battalion is moving during the day. Because of the IEDs, which were everywhere, if I could show the pictures, IEDs were everywhere. They were not able to move during the night because they couldn't see the IEDs. So they had to move only during the day. Now, the regular units moved much more faster than the reserve units, of course. You can understand why. But they also had new ideas. For example, the battalion from the Bugulani Brigade understood that it has to create a logistic road, an easy way to evacuate wounded and to give supplies to the forces. Because until the second day, each movement was uh, walking. So half of the force was only to bring logistic in and to take out a wounded soldiers. So they used the D9 in order to create a road for the tanks and for the armored vehicles to enter the refugee camp. Yeah, I remember you explaining this to us where they were basically getting cut off, couldn't get to their supplies. So the commander asked the D9 to create a road through the buildings. Is that right? Yeah. Took a road that existed and expanded it, make it bigger in order that the armored vehicles could enter. And it also enabled him to move inside the tanks. Until then, the tanks are around the refugee camp. They can't enter. So he had more firepower. And again, you can see the difference between the reserved and the regular ideas or, or ability to move. So whose decision was that a regular army commander decision about the, the road and the... The battalion commander. What happened till the end of the battle is that the regular battalion commanders spoke to their own brigade commanders. They felt that the brigade commander, which was deputy commander and was a reserved, is not their commander. The trust or the confidence in him was very low because they didn't know him for the first time. And then they saw that he doesn't enter the refugee camp and they never see him. So they spoke to their commanders, to the commander they knew and trusted. So actually the battle was supposed to be a brigade a battle, but actually it was a, between four to five different battalion battles. Each battalion had its own uh, section, but they didn't help each other during the fight. Each one had its own section and moved in this, this section, but the fight was not a, a brigade f- a battle, in the systematic idea. No, I get it. That's going to cause problems. Yeah. Then when you get into the refugee camp, more and more forces, it doesn't help you because it's so small that the units cannot really move or to do something different. And you mainly get concerned about friendly fire when you have so much forces in such a small area. So we moved to the 5th of April. We had again... Four battalions and the Navy SEALs are fighting in the refugee camps. Until now, we had seven dead soldiers. The battalion from the Golani Brigade is moving much faster than the others, and also the battalion from the Nahal Brigade. On the 6th, they understood that the Navy SEALs are not supporting the attack because the enemy is not, is not running away, not moving to the city. So the Navy SEALs actually volunteers to play a role like a regular battalion. So it started to fight in the eastern side of, of the refugee camp. And again, the movement is very, very slow. Again, 20 meters a day. That's it. Now, if you got confused of all the forces operating in the refugee camp, so on the 7th, the chief of staff decided that there's not enough forces, so we can put another force. 
that they took Duvdevan, which is a camouflage unit. It's a unit that specialized in dressing up like Arabs or something like that, and then operating. Yeah, it's like the special forces in the army, right? Yeah, it's a special unit. Now they put a special unit to do an ordinary f- battle. They didn't know how to do it. They know how to get secretly into the city and arrest terrorists, but they didn't know how to operate in a battle, an ordinary battle. But they also entered the battle. So now we had so many forces which are not connected to each other, fighting in the battle, which was actually almost at the end. We're speaking about the end of this battle. But again, another force which I don't think really helped the fight. Because again, if you had all these forces in the beginning, it looked different. Because then you would able to attack from different sections. But when you enter it day after day, it's not really helping. So now we are on the 8th of April. The commander of the battalion from the Golani Brigade, on this day, he lost two soldiers. And he decided to stop the movement and try to learn what's going on in the battlefield. And he understood that the enemy understood the techniques of the IDF. It understood that during the night we are not doing any movement. Then in the morning, we choose a house or a building which is very easy to get in and is very easy to defend. Then we enter this building and maybe another building and that's it. So during the night, the enemy actually booby-trapped the houses that he understood we are going to enter during the day and placed snipers around these houses and just waited for us. That was his lesson from that day that he lost two soldiers. And then he decided that this Italian is not moving anymore. He lost five soldiers during these five days of fighting. He decided that the soldiers are not moving by foot, they're only moving with armed vehicles. And the D9 will clear the weight for the armored vehicles. Now, on that night, all the battalion commanders met in the brigade headquarters. The order from the general chief of staff was to finish this battle the day after. Now, why? It's the the obvious question, because uh, let's say the Americans are asking to end this uh, operation. Now, Israel battles are always, we have what we call the timer. We understand that when we begin a battle or an operation or a war, it depends, the international time will start to tickle and, and they will say to us when to stop. And on the 8th or 9th in April, it was very, very understood that we need to finish this operation or, or this battle. So the order was to finish the next day the battle. It was something like 20 or 30 square kilometers only. The enemy was in 10 or 20 buildings. That was the end, almost the end of, of the battle. And again, they meet in the headquarters, in the brigade headquarters, and the, the regular battalion commander is telling the commanders what he understood from that day of fighting. That you cannot enter houses. They understood that. But again, I don't know if they were tired or they had no option or, or something like that. They said, okay, okay, but they didn't really learn the lesson he learned. You know, the next day, one of the battalion, of the reserve battalion, had to move to the next line of buildings in order it was almost to finish the battle. That day was also the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Day. So you have to understand the emotions in the Israeli society, in the IDF also. In that morning, the morning of the 9th of April, 
a company commander from this battalion decided not to enter the building he was planning to enter. We will never know what happened because almost every soldier in this team died. Some say that he saw booby traps in this house and he decided not to enter this house, but another house in this alley. 18 soldiers went after him into this alley and they didn't understand that this alley was in a low place and it was surrounded by buildings. And the enemy probably understood we are going to move there and prepared booby traps and IDs and, and snipers. And a battle began over this alley. During this battle, 13 soldiers died. Most of them, nobody understood where are the soldiers are because they were sure he was in the building that he was supposed to enter. So the rescue forces went to this building and then they got stuck in the alley again. So on that day, 13 soldiers died from the reserve battalion. Yeah, did they call it the, the bathtub or, or something? The bathtub, yeah, because it looked like a bathtub. They were got stuck in the lower place and the militants were in the higher place. They also were able to catch three bodies of the soldiers. Now you have to understand that in Israel, if they catch, even if it's a body of a soldier, it's, this is a real success. So the all IDF, or all the forces in Jenin were focusing on finding these bodies. After uh, six hours, they were able to find it in a building near this alley. But the interesting thing is that what happened during this, because the battle itself in this alley was very micro-tactics, what happened over there. But the rumors, it's the first time the IDF saw what's going on in the internet. Because it didn't uh, let the news go out, again, because they had three bodies lost and we wanted to find them, the rumors started during this day. Now it's the Holocaust Memorial Day. Everybody is not in a real good mood. And then the rumors started. There was a rumor that the chief of staff was killed. Then there was a rumor that entire Navy SEALs was killed. Then the defense... A lot of rumors. The IDF wasn't able to cope with that because they never saw it on the internet. It was 2002. So the actually number, the 13 soldiers that died in that day and the rumors created a very bad atmosphere in the Israeli society after the operation was very, very successful. During the entire operation, defensive shield, I think only between four or five soldiers died. Not in Jenin, four soldiers. And in one day in Jenin, you had 13 soldiers getting killed. After this incident, the chief of staff decided that enough is enough again. He ordered that they will use only D9s in the movement like the battalion commander said the night before. And actually, the fighting ended two days after, in the 11th of April. The entire refugee camp was in the hands of the IDF. The big story of this battle is the media story. I won't enter it because it's not, I don't think it's what interesting us, the, the rumors about the massacre that wasn't there. Even the UN checked this, the number of people who died during the battle, 52 from the Arab side. Most of them of our militants during the battle. Most of the civilians left the refugee camp. We understood it after three or four days because the soldiers reported they enter a house and the house is, is empty. And even after that, we didn't use artillery or jets, real bombs to, during the, the battle because we were afraid of hitting civilians. Well, like you said, there's a lot of lessons. So there wasn't, there wasn't media with the IDF during the operation, right? No. When this battle began, they decided not to let media enter the refugee camp because of the IEDs. 
again, more than 1,000 IEDs in this area. So they wanted to protect the reporters. Later, they didn't understood what's going on exactly in the refugee camp. And when you hear the stories about the massacre, you first want to, to understand what's going on. And they really were afraid of the reporters entering the refugee camp. And when the battle ended, they let a pool of reporters enter the refugee camp and everybody saw it. there's no massacre, less than 50 bodies in the area. But it was too late. When the rumor is going out, it's very hard to fight it. Until now in Israel, there's a, a judicial procedure against people who say that there was a ma- massacre. But again, 52 Palestinians got killed in this battle. Most of them, we have the names, militants. So the massacre wasn't there. It's very easy to show it. Yeah, I know a lot of work's been done, but the lesson is definitely there about the rumor control for sure. Yeah, and, and you have to be very fast. And my lesson is that you need to speak with the forces inside the battlefield. They know the best what's going on. Not the intelligence, and not the commander in the headquarters. Yeah, that, that mixture of troops really prevented that sharing of knowledge too, right? They never worked together, that trust to share information like that. It seemed like to be complicating it. Yeah, first you need to ask the question. You need to, t- to ask the battalion commander, how many bodies do you see in the... Re- like you ask him how many citizens you see. Ask him the, the right question and he, he, he can tell you. He's in the refugee camp. Now, the Golani brigade commander and other brigade commanders entered the refugee camp. But again, they were not responsible to the media, to the spokesman. But if you ask the right questions, the soldiers in the battlefield, they can tell you. They had time during the night to talk about it. But nobody asked this question. Like they only asked the question about the citizens very late during the battlefield. What other big lessons? I know that the bathtub or the courtyard ambush seems to be a, a very big lesson and awareness of being in an ambush like that and keep sending soldiers into the ambush. But are there other big lessons that you take from the Battle of Janine? I would say another lesson about the bathtub. When you try to rescue soldiers first, you have to take care of the security. First, find where the militants are. Then do the rescue operation. I know that psychological is very hard, but I think it's another case of what's going on when you run into the battlefield to take the wounded out and you don't think about the enemy. So again, it's another, unfortunately, another example, but again and again, you have to, to remember first, find the enemy, kill him, and then take care of the wounded. It happens to us a lot of time. Now, my lesson from this battle. First, the enemy learns, and he learns fast. You cannot think that he doesn't learn like you. This is a great example, unfortunately. The IDF did the same plan the Golani Brigade did three weeks before. And it's stupidity to do the same thing again and again and to think that the other side won't learn. So if you enter the same enemy in the same area, you have to do something different, something different. This is the first lesson. Second, when you succeed in a battle, it might do problems to the next battle. I think that the battalion from the Golani Brigade was very self-confident and it transferred it to the reserve forces also. That it's not a big problem, they will run away, it will be a piece of cake. So if you succeed in one battle, don't think it will happen in the next battle. You have to, to be concerned of the things. And the main lesson is that if you have the forces, put them in the beginning. It's not like a marathon that you need to spare your strength to the end. 
if the IDF was putting all the forces in the beginning, like I said, I think it would look totally different results. In the last conclusion for I had from this case that I studied is that before the battle, usually you have plans. Let's say the IDF, not like the U.S. military, the IDF knows where it's going to fight. We have Judea and Samaria, we have the Gaza Twins, we have Lebanon, we have Syria. It's very easy. We are not going to fight in the North Pole or in Ukraine or in the jungles. So we have plans. We know where the forces will go. But let's say an hour before you start the battle, look at the forces that you plan to put inside the battle and look critically on why you send them. Again, the idea of why the IDF decided to send this reserved brigade, because it thought that the regular units will be in a different theater it thought that this brigade was prepared. But if we had, let's say, a day before the battle began, we understood that there's no brigade commander, we have some regular battalions free, we can use them, maybe the decision was different to send a regular brigade to the refugee camp. But because we were so stuck with the plan, the master plan, we didn't think of the new situation that evolved, that we don't have a command of this brigade. And I think this is something that we must remember. We don't need to be in love in initial plan and the forces that we are sending. Because sometimes we have a new opportunity, so why not using it? And in this case, we missed it. The opportunity to send a regular or more prepared reserved unit. Yeah, for sure. I can see that. There's some complexities here that seem to be a little bit unique with Italians being given up, but they're still talking to their old brigade commander. Like you said, complexity of the chain of command here seems to be too complex for sure. Yeah, but you must put it in your considerations. If this brigade doesn't have a commander, or the commander came a week before... Give two reserve battalions to that regular brigade and have them do the mission. Yeah, then you have regular brigade commander controlling. Because in the end, it was... He had so many units, I really feel sorry for him because he wasn't able to control this battle. He wasn't ready for that. Yeah, especially against that small density of terrain, like you said, the complexity of that coordinating friendly forces in a football field and having four plus battalions converging. That span of control is complex. Yeah, and more forces don't help you. Sometimes you can say, I have enough forces, just let me control them. That's the main mission I have. Right. Did he ever move up from the headquarters up to the battlefield? Did he do that quickly? No, he never entered the battlefield. No, one, one time, one time, almost in the end. Well, Ahad, this has been amazing, and I learned a lot that I, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. I think this will be a great addition to the podcast series about this very unique, to say it was dense is an understatement, dense urban battle. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much. I hope it will help other people to... Be prepared for a dance. For sure. Well, thanks again, Ohan. Yeah, okay. Good day. Anna.